Our scripture reading for the sermon is from 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, and chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. One of our uh, very, very favorite places to go any time of year is a short drive from Nashville, from Franklin, Fall Creek Falls State Park. Some of you have been there. Some of you are ready to go again. And on a day like this, you uh, just might. But one of the things I need to warn you about <clears throat> is on the Gorge Trail, which some of you have been on, even if you didn't know its name, you'll remember that there is a trail that comes out upon a swinging suspension bridge. And I'll let you know this because <clears throat> you need to know that there's a swinging suspension bridge. The first time I, I went across that bridge, I was a teenager, and uh, I did what a lot of teenagers might on that uh, swinging suspension bridge. I was testing to see how well it would hold and how long I would hold. And um, that was once upon a time. Uh, I recently went across that same bridge um, with some teenagers. <laughs> and this time uh, going across that bridge, it was a different experience. It wasn't just one, it was a couple and then three doing the same thing I had done uh, decades ago at this point. And, about halfway across, as they begin their antics, I'm wondering, is this going to end well? Uh, we're looking at the uh, Cane Creek Cascades and uh, suspended over it, and I'm holding tighter than I was the two handrails. Is this going to end well? But it's not just bridges, is it? It's not just swinging bridges when we ask that question, is it going to end well? 
or how's this going to end? It has to do with, for some of us, wondering if we're going to outlive our money. How's this going to end? It may have something to do with the relationship that is not working out the way that you thought. How is this going to end? It may be <clears throat> health-related because everything in us wants to be that cancer survivor. There's a lot of things that cause us to ask the question, how is this going to end? In fact, that's all of life, really. I mean, there's something, it doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're six or 66 or something on, in between or beyond. We, we want this to end well. When we're six, we don't think about it very much. When we're 16, uh, we don't. But somewhere along the way, and this is a heads up for those of you that haven't begun to think about this yet, the question, whether it's a marriage or a job or just the life that we live, the question will be, how's this going to end? And can I finish well? Can I finish this thing that has begun? There's some obstacles to finishing well. You may think of some. I've thought of a few, but there's some obstacles. Fatigue is one. Just the kind of the weariness, and some of you know this all too, and you've been glad for a holiday because of the weariness of trying to make things work. There's a fatigue that sets in, and sometimes that fatigue just takes on a life of its own and a size that is insurmountable, and the fatigue just weighs you down, and you're thinking about not finishing uh, sometimes it's a surprise, maybe like those teenagers on the bridge with me. I hadn't, didn't see that one coming. But there's a surprise that comes our way. We didn't see it coming. And it's that obstacle on the train track that can even derail the train. Some, sometimes surprises we don't, in various forms. Sometimes it's, it can be the fatigue. It can be the surprise. It can be just disorientation where for whatever reason you, you uh, recognize that I don't see things as clearly as I did, or maybe it's disillusionment. That job, it's not what was advertised. Or even in marriage, who is this person? There's a disillusionment that can creep in and overwhelm. And sometimes, Scripture tells us that it's blindness. The writer of Hebrews uh, warns us about the fact that we can be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin because we don't see what we don't see. There's a lot of reasons for it. And there's a, actually in this epistle from 2 Timothy, we find an example of someone who didn't finish well. We didn't read about it, but it's in the context right around. Paul is the author of this letter. He's writing near the end of his life. He's writing with what one, one observer described um, as clarity, serenity, and finality because he's entering in to his 
last years thinking about finishing. And he thinks about a young man that was with him who is no longer. His name is Demas. We don't know much about him. But he was with Paul, and now Paul tells us, he has deserted me. Here's one that didn't finish well. But in this same text, we find the example of one who did. It's Paul. It's the author. It's the writer, the one who, who uh, has written so much. We know a lot about this man from the other epistles that he wrote prior to this one. There's every reason to think this is his last one. He talks about his pending death. His death is near. He's writing to a, a traveling companion for over two decades in ministry named Timothy. A 20-year or so friendship. And he's, and he's writing some things that he wants this younger man to know about finishing. And what we see from Paul is his own self-assessment is, I have fought the good fight. We heard this verse, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. But right now, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. That's an image from an Old Testament sacrifice. And he sees his own life as being poured out because the time of my departure has come. There's something to learn from somebody that is about to die. And what do, we, what do we hear from Paul is not a list of regrets. We don't find from Paul the things that he didn't accomplish. What we find from Paul is what the Lord God accomplished on his behalf. And that's what he hands to this young man, Timothy. And he says, Timothy, if you want to finish well, let me show you the two guard, the handrails. Let me tell you, show you the handrails that you hold on to. There's two of them. One of them is anchored in the past. We can look back with gratitude. And the other is anchored, can you guess, in the future that we can look forward to with anticipation, with hope. With gratitude and hope, we take hold of these two handrails and we grip them in this world like I was gripping that swinging bridge for a while. We hold on to those things. And he wants us to see a couple of things behind us and a couple in front. And that's what we're seeing. What we're going to see here is that we will finish well. That's what Paul is doing in these passages. We will finish well to the degree that we make much of the benefits that are ours in Christ. In fact, how well we finish may be <clears throat> tied to the degree to which we make much of the benefits that are ours in Christ, both behind us in history and ahead of us in a, in a history to come. Let's look at those with the time that we have. First is the handrail rooted in the past. We see this in chapter 1, verse 10, where <clears throat> Paul writing, he says, uh, I'll begin reading in verse 9, because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ 
before the ages began, talk about history, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That appearing, that word means manifestation. And what was it? How was Christ man? Well, Advent, we just have, we've been celebrating that, right? It's in this first appearing of the Messiah, this Christmas that we celebrate, this Advent that is ours, where we see just what God does to anchor that handrail firmly. It says Christ came, and he came with a mission, and he came to accomplish. He gives us a double answer as to just exactly what Jesus did in verse 10. The first thing that Jesus did, anchored in the past to secure your present and your future, was that, according to Paul, Jesus Christ abolished death. Death is done. Now, that cannot mean that he eliminated death because we experience that in this world. But Paul triumphantly asserts that something has occurred, that in Christ first appearing, he decidedly defeated or overthrew death. It, <clears throat> the word, as we unpack it, means to make something ineffective, to make it powerless, to make it idle, or to nullify. That's what Jesus, the baby, came to do, to defeat death, to make it powerless, to nullify it, so that, and this is how it works, that physical death, which awaits us all, and which some of us have been way too close to recently, physical death is no longer the grim ogre it once seemed to us, and still seems to many whom Christ has not yet freed from that fear. But for those who are in Christ, as Paul writing to Timothy, he reminds him and helps him to see that, that physical death is not that grim ogre that it was because that is a part of a larger story. And for the Christian, death, to use Paul's words elsewhere, is really falling asleep. In fact, it's a positive gain because it's the gateway to being with Christ, which is far better, Paul writes, other places. It's been rendered innocuous. It doesn't sting the same way that Jesus could even state that the believer, though he dies, shall never die. But what's absolutely certain is that death will never be able to separate us from God's love in Christ. That's why Charles Wesley, and we've just sung this, haven't we? <clears throat> Charles Wesley wrote, and we sing, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's a deal. It's anchored in the past that we hold on to in the present. That's one thing. And the second one is, is the positive counterpart. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, uh, Paul writes. It's by his death and resurrection that Christ abolished death, but it's through the gospel that he now reveals what he has done and offers men and women and children the life 
and immortality which he has won for them. Life and immortality, those may be synonymous, one explaining the other, but life is what is yours in Christ. Death is abolished, life is granted. So Wesley writes, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. That's a handrail. That in the midst of the uncertainty in this world, how is this going to end? Is it going to end well? Well, there's part of your answer right there. It's going to end well. It, you, the finances may not, all the relationships may not, but the things that matter most, the things that are most, the things that are ultimate. The, in fact, that's part of growing up, isn't it? Isn't part of growing up recognizing what matters, what's important, what's ultimate. And when you're 16, it's one thing. But until when God opens your eyes, you begin to see, hey, there's ultimate. That's, that's important. And that's settled. And that gives me a poise on this swinging suspension bridge of life. That the big thing is settled. Death is destroyed. Life is granted. And those are mine in Christ. But the other one, this other handrail that stretches forward, that's rooted in the future, we can look ahead with hope. We see that in that next little paragraph in, in chapter 4, verse 8. Did you hear that one again? There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He talks about a day. And when the Bible talks about the day, when Paul talks about the day, he's talking about a day in the future, a day beyond, a day that stretches in to the world to come. And he says there's a couple of things that are important to recognize. That there's a righteous judge. There's a righteous judge who will right every wrong who will deal with the fact that apart from him and his work in this world, we might be as cynical and pessimistic as the next guy. I've, I've lived through some of that. I remember as a young man wondering, what's going on in this world? Is there a hope? Is there a hope for this world? And what we find, whether it's an editorial or we, wanna, we, wanna, we hope that there's hope. We hear a lot about the promises in a presidential election year. We hear about hope. But there's something in the human heart that, that kind of wonders. There's a pessimism and a cynicism that we would quickly fall into and not be able to get out of. Accept that. The Christian faith holds firmly to this notion, and Paul declares it right here, that there is a righteous judge who's not cynical, who's not pessimistic, who is all-powerful and very, very apparently patient, who will one day right every wrong, who will see that every injustice is dealt with, 
that all oppression is destroyed because light and life have been brought forward. But here's what Paul wants Timothy to understand, that this righteous judge in the future is the same one who points to his son who gave himself and endured the punishment that was yours. So that the fact that there's a righteous judge up ahead is actually good news. It's good news for those of you who are in Christ. The Father points to the Son as the the one who out of love endured the punishment that was yours. That's the first thing he wants you to see, that there's a righteous, there's a, the Lord will stand as a righteous judge. But he goes on to say that that same one will distribute, award, crowns of righteousness. I'm not really sure exactly. Uh, there's a couple of different ways that that's interpreted. One interpretation is the, it's, he's ta- that Paul is writing about the crown that consists of righteousness. The crown that Christ obtained and received and then places upon you. But people would, would venture that interpretation because we do read about robes of righteousness that are granted to the believer. Those robes of righteousness that have nothing to do with your efforts, your abilities, everything to do with Christ and His. And so we know, reading other places, that we will receive robes of righteousness, and that makes us acceptable to this judge who is our Father who sent His Son to pay the penalty. But more than that, to live the life that we cannot live. A lot of us wonder how it's going to finish because we've only got half a gospel. We may, if you grew up in this part of the world, you you may likely know at some level and understand that Christ has paid for your sins. And we remind one another of that every Sunday when we confess our sin and we receive this assurance of pardon. But it's more than that. It's not just that the, the record has been wiped clean and you've got another fresh start, like January 1st resolutions. It's better than that. Because you receive robes of righteousness or a crown of righteousness that you did not earn. This will finish well for those who are in Christ. That's one interpretation. The other is maybe, and this would fit with things that Paul writes elsewhere, it may be that the crown is the reward of righteousness, meaning a reward for those things that we step into and do well and those those aspects of obedience in our lives. It could be that. It would fit. Paul uses this athletic imagery. He's just right here, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've been stretching toward this finish line and I can see it and I'm there and I'm about to cross it. I've been a steward of these gifts and these abilities and I've, and I've stewarded them as best I know. And God has used that stewardship for his glory, not mine. There's an aspect of that which is true. But in either case, 
whether it's the crown of that consists of righteousness or the crown that's reward of righteousness, it is for those who have set their hearts on his coming appearance. That's how one translation makes it clear that this is not that first appearance. This is another. It's, it's a second appearance. It's the one to come. So there's two appearings. The one that we just celebrated at Advent and the one when Christ returns to this world, which is the, his world that he made for the display of his own glory. And he will come. And we're living between those two appearings. And for those of us who long for that, we receive these, this crown of righteousness. Not because there's anything meritorious about it to adopt that attitude to try harder, but it's because it's a sure evidence of justification. It's a sure evidence of justification that God has been at work in you and he has done this thing for these things when you long for that and, and stretch for it. That's why, and when we do, we don't shrink in shame, but we, we reach forward with boldness. why John wrote this, now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Two handrails, one anchored in the past, one anchored in the future. And here we are on this swinging bridge of life. What does it look like to have a life for a life to be shaped by those two realities or four realities if you did the math? Two in the past and two in the future, two handrails. What does the life look like? What does gospel poise look like so that we would finish well? We see it here in, in, in Paul's own life. He talks about, I'm going to use four words, focus or single-mindedness. He talks about other places. He uses that athletic imagery to affirm that the close of his life, he's engaged himself in the one thing that really matters. He's given himself to a race, to a fight, and he's given himself. He's been focused on it, and that will get me there. That's what, that's what it looks like uh, to live well on this swinging bridge, focus. It's why David prayed for an un, because of his undivided heart, he prayed that God would unite his heart. And that could be my prayer any day and probably yours. Lord, give me that focus. Unite my heart here in this moment to see what matters, and to give myself to that which matters. Focus, <clears throat> perseverance, a willingness to, and a capacity to suffer. There was a perseverance that marked his life, and he writes about his suffering. He's writing as a prisoner, and he talks about suffering, and, and we know that, right? We know what some of that is. It may not be prison, but there's suffering that marks my life and yours. And what we see in Paul and what can be true in ours is a perseverance that, that comes from these, these bigger realities. Faith, I know whom I've believed, a life of faith. And so in the midst of the whirlwind and the tornado of life, whatever it is that's threatening to knock you off balance, faith. I know whom I believe, Paul says, and I trust him that he will be able to finish what he began. And he will hold for me that which is mine. 
focus, perseverance, faith, and similarly, <clears throat> I, I'm convinced that he is able, a God confidence, a God confidence in the midst of the storm. Focus, perseverance, faith, and God confidence. We see these. Here's a picture. You want a picture? Jonathan Edwards. Some of you know this. <clears throat> um, he's known for a lot of things behind, besides the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. One of the things that he is maybe as well known for in some circles are the resolutions that he wrote as a young man. See if you don't hear focus, perseverance, faith, and God dependence in these. Resolved to live so at all times as I think is best in my devout frames and when I have clearest notions of things of the gospel in another world. Translated, I want to live at all times as I do at those times that the gospel is most vivid to me. I want to live on this swinging suspension bridge in light of these gospel truths that have nothing to do with me or my circumstances, but have everything to do with God's purposes, His presence, and His power in my life. Resolved, I will act so as I think I shall judge I would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Living with purpose, knowing that this world is not my home, but there is another. So let me, let me wrap this up. Ask yourself, as I ask myself, what are the big truths? What are the big truths that are bigger than my circumstances? Here are three coming right out of what we just said, just real briefly. Another world has broken into this one. Leslie Newbegin was a British theologian, missionary, landed in India, became, became involved in the church in India, one of their first bishops. And he said this about Advent. The Advent faith that we've just marked and celebrated is the faith that there are really new possibilities for our world. God has come into this one. There are new possibilities. It means that we live with a certain skepticism toward this world, and we do not, don't act as if this were the only possible world. The Advent season that we just celebrated, he says, should remind us that we can never be and should not be adjusted to this world, meaning at home, ultimately. We're here to proclaim the reality, he says, and the imminence of a wholly other world, a world in which different powers, rules, and different standards operate, and to make it possible for ordinary men, women, and children to really believe this, and therefore to live in hope and readiness. And the basis of our assurance, he says, the basis of that assurance that it is already broken in, and those powers and those standards are already at work, and we see that, some we see in one another. Because there are people in this room whose lives are not what they were. And it's not because you became a better person or a church goer, although those are sometimes related. 
But what, the, what, we're, what you're looking at and seeing is that the, wor- the power of God and the world to come has broken into this one, and he changes hearts. He changes lives. And that's the basis of our hope. The first one is <clears throat> that another world has broken into this one. The second one is the reality of the world to come sustains us in this one. Your church staff is reading a book <clears throat> together entitled The Things of the Earth, where the author near the end points to Hebrews 11 and 12. And you can look at that later. We've talked about it here recently. Hebrews 11 and 12, where we get this picture. It's written to a people who are suffering persecution. How's it going to end for you, persecuted church? Remember that the reality of the, of the world to come is what sustains us in this one. He writes, the author writes, what sustains us in the darkest times is the holy and abiding presence of God with his perfected and transformed and embodied people in his unshakable and glorious kingdom city for all eternity, world without end. Wow. That's what's in front of you. That sustains us in this world. And finally... While we wait, and we'll end with this, while we wait, we rest in the truth of the reality that God has already given us all things. You know, we don't know the reason God allows certain things to happen, the things that would knock us for a loop, knock us off balance, maybe even knock us to our knees. We don't know the reason. But it cannot be that he does not love us. If God actually provided an explanation, one man wrote, for all the reasons why he allows things to happen as they do, it would be too much for our finite minds. Think of children and their parents. And what children are certain age is they don't need all the explanation. They don't need all the reasons. What they need to know is that the word for mother and father is trustworthy and ultimately good. And that allows them, makes them capable of trusting and living securely. Children, you can live securely knowing that your parents are guiding you forward. But if that's true for parents and children, What about us? I mean, the gap is not 20 years of learning and understanding. The gap between my finite mind and God's is infinite. And so we trust one who is good, regardless of what comes our way. What would knock us off balance? Because our balance our center of gravity, our gospel poise is rooted in God's work in this world and his tender mercies expressed to you. Anne Voskamp wrote some years after the tragic, senseless death of her sister. And she said this, God gave us Jesus 
If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on his cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He has already given us the incomprehensible. And because he has, and because in Christ who whispers your name and says, trust me, I love you. Hold on. You will finish. And you will finish well. Because it's God at work in this world through Christ who gave himself and gives himself to us. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would help us to rethink the circumstances of our lives, to recognize that there are things that will knock us off balance, but through your goodness and your loveliness and your beauty, is so much larger than the circumstances of our lives. We rest in you. We trust you. Help us. In Christ's name, amen.